time, if you will. Deutero two namas. The law, the word. He is he's given it to the people. And um he, he's kind of turning the corner here in this this uh song and he he's knowing that some are going to fall away. He's already seen when God brought him out of the promised land, the people fall, some of the people fall away, starting worshiping idols. And now he, he knows that some will fall away. Um, and so he, he's given this instruction in the, this song, and he's talking about the, the wrath of God. It's a warning. It's a warning for those who are not truly Israel, truly God's people, to turn and to, to come to faith. It's a warning to those who confess to be God's people to not turn from the faith. Um, and so I, I feel um, in this new year, I'm in this month of January, and starting with last week's message, this desire to... Um, you know, kind of give us, remind us of the faith, remind us of the newness of the faith, the miracle of the faith, the calling of newness in our in our lives. I'm a big history nerd, so I've been big on American history, and um, this message kind of plays in. Before our great nation was even a nation, it was a bunch of colonies, and many of them were founded for religious freedom. Europe was a war zone after the Protestant Reformation. At that time, whatever religion was the official religion or faith or denomination of each nation, everyone in that nation was expected to have that same faith. The Lutherans in Germany and the Catholics and France and Spain and the Church of England and England, you weren't really allowed to have a differing opinion. So outsiders were ostracized and persecuted and murdered and forced to practice things that they did not believe. So with a desire to not have the government dictate who or what or how we worship, People fled to America. It was a refuge for Baptists and Congregationalists and Quakers and Presbyterians and others. And before our nation became one that now fights to be free from religion, it was a place for freedom of religion. Fast forward a couple of generations from those settlers to the early 1700s in a time that we refer to as the Great Awakening. Leaders and pastors, churches had noticed a marked difference from the faith that was described in the Bible to the American dream being lived out in their communities. They sought correction, biblical correction. It was far from the faith that they had fled to the colonies for. So the preachers began preaching the need for the gospel. 
They preached sin and they preached its consequences and the need for forgiveness in Jesus Christ. And they preached the need to be born again and to live all of our lives for Jesus Christ. And what God did through this focus on the gospel, on sin, on the need for repentance, on the wrath of God, on new birth, on grace, was revival. We call this revival or renewal the great awakening. This revival was so huge, especially in the New England area, that it was shocking to see churches that had not gone through revival. Could you imagine that? Could you imagine revival being so big, sweeping through this area, that it would be shocking to see a church that had not gone through revival? That's something to pray for, huh? So, in 1741, Jonathan Edwards was asked to go to one of these churches who had not yet experienced revival and preach a sermon. The sermon he preached was one of the most famous sermons in American and Christian history and became a symbol of the Great Awakening. It was titled, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And it preached sin, and it preached hell, and it preached grace, and it preached forgiveness. But what was important to note of the outcome of this message was the need for Jesus Christ being recognized in the hearts of those who heard and it was printed, and those who read what was printed. So um, today, it's a little bit different from, from the usual. We, we speak on the, on the billboard of preaching grace and walking in, in truth, and, and we do that, and it's joyful. And, um, but there are needs for sermons like these in our hearts. We need to be reminded of these things from time to time as well as those who might be watching or listening online or those who you might share the sermon with, the need of understanding why we need the gospel is huge. Many people show up to churches for various reasons, and many of them aren't Jesus of the reasons that they come for or come to worship. We need Jesus. We worship Jesus because we know how great he is. And in order to know the need for Jesus and know how great he is, we need messages like Jonathan Edwards gave on sinners in the hands of an angry God. Men were not driving the great awakening, but it was God and his word. People were reconciling the very clear biblical realities of sin and hell and how they were living their lives. They were confronted with the need for the gospel. We need to be confronted in our lives with the need for the gospel. So, this new year, I want us to examine afresh the gospel. Examine ourselves 
and where we stand in the faith. Started last week with the, the need for new birth, the results of new birth. And today, I want to look at that famous sermon. I want us to examine the realities of what it means to be sinners in the hands of an angry God and how Edwards applied that and how God would have that apply to us today. So Deuteronomy 32, verse 35. Vengeance is mine, is mine and recompense for the time when their foot shall slip for the day of their calamity is at hand, and their doom comes swiftly. This was Edward's text for the message. God, through Moses, was warning the people what happens to God's enemies, the enemies of God's people, those who reject him, those whose lives are lived opposed to his character, opposed to his commands opposed to his will. Some are outright enemies, visible to all, rejecting God, rejecting and persecuting God's people. But some are confessing believers who refuse to heed and listen to the warnings and the counsel, the grace of God. They are whitewashed tombs, appearing holy on the outside to others, but inside they are dead. Man will not or may not be the ones to pay them back for the sins they've committed. Vengeance and recompense belong to the Lord. They may seem like they're living their best life and the best version of what life could be, but it is only the grace of God that forestalls their calamity. But one day, that day that the Lord has planned, their foot shall slip. And I believe Edward's intent for his, was for his listeners to take careful consideration of their true standing with God. Where do I stand with God? Why do I stand where I stand with God? And it's better to grapple with this, these hard messages like this, these hard messages to share with others. It is better to grapple with this tough subject with eyes wide open than to hide our eyes, bury our heads in the sand until we come face to face with God. Those on the wrong side of God may think they are right with God because they haven't seen that calamity up front. Everything is going well in life. God must be on my side. Look at how great my life is going. Surely, if I were not right with God, things would not be going so well. But God is storing up a mighty wrath. And then on one day, the day of appointed calamity, doom comes swiftly, stands in opposition, doesn't it, of the picture of God painted by many today, this God like he's a, a cute, benevolent grandfather just sitting up in heaven hoping someone picks him and, and chooses to come to his side. 
It's under this context that Edwards drew out his application. So I want to look at those now and then see how that might apply to us and certainly to our unbelieving country and our unbelieving community and our unbelieving neighbors and friends. First, we see the restraining will of God. Edwards gave four observations that come from knowing God's vengeance is coming for his enemies. He says this about those who are enemies of God. Their lives have always been lived in constant exposure to destruction. They are, in fact, dead men walking constantly from the date they were born until this day. God's calamity could come at any time. At any time, their life could end and hell could be upon them. There is zero expectation of safety or security. We have wonderful passages. If you look in your bulletin, you'll see one in Isaiah 43. It talks about God who tells us to fear not. Brothers and sisters, you should take hold of passages like that in the Bible and rejoice and find comfort and find strength in them. But for those who reject God, who are enemies in God, they should never be shared with them as if they have no fear of God. Because that day of calamity could come at any time. So safety and security in the Lord is not something that they can count on. Psalm 73, verses 18 19 says, Truly, talking to God, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Third Edward says they, they don't need someone else to cause their destruction. They're liable to do it themselves. And fourth, the only reason calamity has not happened yet is because God's appointed time has not come. Hebrews 9.27 says, it is appointed for man to die once. And after that comes judgment. For the time when their foot shall slip, for the day of their calamity is at hand. Their doom comes swiftly. God has appointed a time. We each have a time here on earth. We don't know when that time will be over. Those who reject God in their words or in their lives have no security. And vengeance when it comes will come quickly. And the fact that it has not come yet is only because God's appointed time has not come. So they live in God's grace. Remember the interaction between Adam and Eve and Satan in the Garden of Eden? He says, when you eat the fruit, you shall surely die. Satan right there says, you shall not surely die. So they eat the fruit. Do they die? They don't die right then. Why not? The the death is coming. But that appointed time, they live in God's grace until that time has come. And that is what it's like for enemies of God. That grace that God shows even to those who reject him. Edwards goes 
deeper into that next. He makes 10 observations or considerations about God's power and about God's grace and unbelieving man's impending doom. He says, number one, it is not lack of power that restrains God as if those rejecting him are putting up a fight. And many can feel that. Well, if God's wrath isn't coming, maybe it's something that I'm doing that's keeping that from happening. It's not lack of power that restrains God. That can happen at any moment. And there's nothing we can do to thwart it. Number two, it's not meanness or unkindness on God's part that sends anyone to hell. It's not unfairness on God's part that sends anyone to hell. Any and everyone who go to eternal destruction go there because they deserve it. You cannot understand grace if you do not get that. None of us deserve to be saved. All of us, if we are believers, we're in that condition being described. But God intervened. It's all by grace that we are saved. But we have to understand it's nothing I did to warrant God's grace, his mercy. But we do need to understand that everyone deserves it. Number three, not only do we deserve it, or they deserve it, unbelieving enemies of God, but they've already been handed down the sentence of condemnation. Jesus says in John 3, 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. The condemnation, the sentence has already been declared. Those who reject God already have the condemnation upon them. Now, we have that wonderful verse in Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because he's taken that condemnation. But more about that later. So, the sentence of condemnation has already been handed down. Number four, they are already the object of God's wrath. Just because they aren't in hell already shouldn't confuse them into thinking God is not angry with them right now. God is angry towards sin, towards sinners. He's angry. His wrath is being prepared to be poured out. And just because they're not receiving that right now does not mean that God is not angry. He is not, there's no ambivalence or ambiguity towards sin. There's not, mm, maybe he's in this middle ground. He's not. And that, just because it, you're not seeing it meted out does not mean God is not angry. Because of this, number five, we talked about this in Sunday school. Satan stands ready for God to permit, permit him to fall upon them to eternal torment. Think about that for a second. Talked about church discipline in Sunday school. This is the handing over. 
people refuse counsel. They refuse to come back to the Lord. They refuse repentance. They want to stay in their sin and justify their sin. So the New Testament gives us instruction to lovingly and carefully and painfully exercise church discipline to when it comes to the ultimate point of handing them over to Satan. Those who reject God, who turn from him, Satan stands ready. Number six, the wickedness that already resides in them will serve as a kindling to the fires of hell. It is only God who restrains wickedness in this world. There's no common good that resides in mankind. We see that, right? We're so shocked when we see some mass shooting or some horrible event, and we want to get to the reason why. It's because we think there's some good, and how could somebody do something so awful because all of us human beings are so good? It's only God that restrains the evil by his mercy. Number seven, I've said this before, I shouldn't take security that death does not seem imminent, doesn't mean that God isn't angry, and that is for the young. Right? It's so hard when you're younger to grasp that you're going to get older, that your body's going to break down, that you could even die. I remember being in, in the military and going on deployments, and it just seemed, even though there, there was a reality of death and death around, you just, you feel invincible when you're younger. Number eight, good health, good health care, good riches, having abundance of food, having worldly security should not give them any peace, that they have peace with God. God brings a lot of people to know him when many of those things are taken away, doesn't he? Take some security away. Take some food away. Take some health away. God's softening the heart. And what he's doing, he's opening our eyes to the reality that, wow, all of this comes from God. All of it comes from God. So having all those things, this is why it's easy or it's difficult for the rich to get into heaven. It's easy for a camel to go through the eye of the needle. Why? Because they don't feel that they need God. So that security should not bring any peace. Number nine, and we've all met people or maybe we've been this person. Every man, every person who hears of hell thinks that they will avoid it. They should not fool themselves by thinking they are better than they are or by comparing themselves to others. You've all shared the gospel with somebody. And they don't think hell is a problem for them. Why? Because they treat people nicely. Because they're 
aligned with whatever's popular in world culture and beliefs. They've got some sort of moral system that they've come up with, and they're doing good in that moral system, so they think God's going to honor that. Or they compare themselves to others. They see their sinful neighbor or brother or sister, and they say, well, I'm not that bad. So God grades on a curve, right? There should be no security in that. Number 10, God has no obligation to keep sinful men out of hell. It is we who rejected him first and not vice versa. We should consider these awful realities. Consider our lives and ask ourselves, where do I stand with God? This is serious. Sharing the gospel with someone is serious business. These are serious things. That's why we say when we, we're loving people when we're sharing the gospel with them. These are horrible realities. But there are some very real and very glorious, glorious realities to consider when we think about these things. So some application. Remember whose wrath God's enemies are under. It isn't some powerful person in the city. It isn't some local warlord who could flip at any point. Some mean boss. Some abusive spouse parents, some leader of a nation or military who's dictator and evil. We're talking about the creator God of the universe who named the stars, knows each one of their names, who formed the earth and everything in it by the word of his power and upholds it. It's the wrath of God that we're talking about. Incomprehensible to us. Think of the worst wrath you can think of, and it's worse than that. Remember, number two, the ferocity of God's wrath. Don't think for a second because he is a loving and kind and gracious gracious and merciful God, that he will relent on the ferocity of his wrath. Hell will not be some sort of bad vacation where there's no Wi-Fi. The ferocity of God's wrath. God is glorified through his wrath. Let's not forget this. God's wrath God's justice, God's anger, he is glorified through these things. We see the beauty and the amazing, the majesty of his character on display through those things. And he will get his glory in this life and in the next. 
Number three, it is an everlasting wrath without end, without the opportunity of appeal or release for time served. Number four, it's avoidable. Amen. Praise God. It's avoidable. Don't ever give a gospel message without the gospel. We all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but God has made a way. His way is his son. His glorious, beautiful, merciful, obedient son who took the worst of his wrath on the cross. We don't know what it's like to be in the presence of God, seeing the face of God from eternity past. So we don't know what it would be like to have that face turned from us and that beauty taken away, but he does. He took it so that sinners like you and sinners like me and sinners like everyone out there might escape the wrath of God. We call that propitiation. He, he appeased the wrath of God. He took it so that you can look upon him and be saved from the wrath of God. You must look upon Jesus. Not on yourselves. How you treat people, how you interact with others comes after you come to Christ for salvation. It's not before. That salvation doesn't happen as a result of how you've treated others and how you interact in the world. It comes after. You must look upon Jesus, not upon yourself, not toward any ritual. Baptism is not going to save you. Praying a prayer is not going to save you. These follow after me prayers. Doing an altar call is not going to save you. All good. All fine. It's Jesus Christ who's going to save you. So we look upon Jesus Christ. He took God's wrath so your life can change. And so you live for him instead of living for your impending doom. And as we're talking about a new year, new you, remember that wrath was taken for a purpose. Not, hey, let me wipe away the debt. Go live how you were living before. Go live how the rest of the world lives. Go believe what the rest of the world believes. No, he took it so that you would be his and follow after him and walk how he walks. And what he says is good and right and holy and just. It's what you believe is good and right and holy and just. You must look on Jesus. Live for Jesus. Hope in Jesus. Trust in Jesus. Don't wait. Don't delay. Don't presume upon God's grace. Boy, did I foolishly presume upon God's grace. Growing up Catholic, I'll live how I want to live. I'll apologize for it all when I get older. What a fool I was. 
If you're young and you hear these things, you're on the internet, you hear these things, don't presume upon God's grace. That day could come today. We see that, don't we? We see it. We saw it in this community right before Christmas, right? Don't delay. Don't presume upon God's grace. This year, 2024, this week, this day, right now, call upon the name of the Lord to be saved. Acts 4.12 says, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. In Romans 10, 9 and 10, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, Jesus is Lord. What do we do with lords? We serve them. We listen to them. We follow them. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, you've been given the new heart, and you believe it's not just lip service. You're not just saying things that you know to be true. It comes from your heart, and you love it. You believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You will be saved, for with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Edwards ended his famous message with these words. Therefore, now remember, he's speaking to a bunch of people who are not following, not walking with the Lord. He says, therefore, let everyone that is out of Christ now awake and fly from the wrath to come. The wrath of Almighty God is now undoubtedly hanging over a great part of this congregation. Let everyone fly out of Sodom. Haste and escape for your lives. Look not behind you. Escape to the mountain, lest you be consumed. And I will add this. Escape. Flee into the loving arms of Jesus Christ. Look to Jesus. Escape to the rock and live. We're going to now celebrate this great escape in joyful worship of the wrath bearer by celebrating the Lord's Supper. So as the men come forward, I want you to contemplate this truth, this awful truth of God's wrath. I want you to be in prayer as communion is distributed. And I pray that your prayer is one of these two things, that number one, If you don't believe or live in repentant belief, that God would change that this instant. Number two, that if you do, if you've been granted repentance and live in repentant belief, not perfect. We desire to be perfect as our Father is imperfect, but we know ourselves. Praise him. This is why we worship. This is why we call him Savior. He saved us from this wrath. This is why we celebrate the Lord's Supper right now. So let us pray these together and for each other right now.